Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. I was inspired by Reverend Link and Reverend Brennan's liturgy. They mentioned Pentecost, which I won't mention in my sermon, but it is Pentecost. But I want you to keep this in mind that at the day of Pentecost, there was a mighty wind that really eventually sent the church throughout all the world to bear witness. Keep that in mind when you hear the scripture and the sermon. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask that in the reading and in the proclamation of a sermon, that it's your word that will be with us, that will guide us to the other side. Amen. We were paddling down an extraordinarily beautiful river. The Dugogne River winds through southern France, and to experience it from a canoe is to enjoy beautiful hills, fields, vineyards, villages, and a surprising number of castles. I mean, you could pull your canoe over and tour one when you wanted to. And the day, the day was perfect. Clear skies, warm weather, cool breeze. I was canoeing with my family. I had a sister, Becky, canoeing with her family. I had a cousin, Jinx, canoeing with her family. Second Presbyterian and Aunt Lily made this possible. In 2012, you provided me with a study sabbatical, and the Lilly Foundation provided a grant that paid for not only my study, but also for this trip to Europe, a family trip to Europe. Now, most of that float down the Gournier was just absolutely idyllic. However, we did encounter one storm along the way. It was not a weather incident, but a personal one. Daughter Rachel and I were paddling in a canoe alongside my sister Becky and her daughter Eliza, and we heard someone yell for help. We quickly paddled toward the panicked screams and found underneath an overhanging tree this middle-aged American couple standing waist-deep with their canoe upturned. She was screaming, and he was trying to calm her down and get her to help him right the canoe. And when we arrived, he told us, we're fine. But she screamed back, we are not fine. And could you please help us? My moron husband doesn't know what he's doing, and he flipped us. He said, I didn't mean to flip us, but that only got her going even harder. I didn't want to get in this stupid canoe. I knew this was going to be miserable, but you had to have your way. And here we are, drenched. This blankety-blank canoe is sunk, and now we're going to be wet and miserable for who knows how long before we can finally get off this blankety-blank river. Becky and I tried to calm her down. Boats flip sometimes. The weather is perfect. The water is warm. We'll get you back in. You'll be fine. But she was not having it. So we quit trying. 
With her yelling as our soundtrack, Becky and I got out of our canoes, stood waist deep in the pleasantly warm water in what was, by the way, a beautifully shaded spot, flipped the canoe, drained it. And we then helped them back into the canoe, and then Becky and I got back in our own canoes and paddled vigorously to get our shell-shocked daughters out of earshot of her continued verbal whipping of her husband. Am I jumping to conclusions and thinking that there might have been something more amiss in that relationship than a flipped canoe? Maybe she not only did not want to be in that canoe, maybe at least in that moment, she didn't want to be in that marriage, or maybe even in her life. Maybe the immediate crisis, if you can call it that, the immediate crisis of a flipped canoe was a portal for something larger and darker to pour through. I might be wrong, of course. I might be reading something into their relationship that was not there. You can be the judge of that. And I might be reading something that isn't there into what happens between Jesus and the disciples while they are in a boat. You be the judge of that as well, even as you listen for the word of God. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are two ways to hear this passage, on its own and as part of a longer story. To hear this passage on its own with no idea of what just happened or what is about to happen is to hear a standalone story of a miracle and a call to faith. Jesus and his disciples are in a boat when a storm hits. We don't need to know that this is the Sea of Galilee to know that it is a big body of water because we hear that there is enough room for waves to have built enough momentum to crash against the boat's sides and spill over the gunnels. Obviously, this crew is in a worse fix than that middle-aged couple standing waist-deep in a beautiful river on a warm day under clear skies. There are legitimate reasons for the disciples to be concerned that the boat will be swamped or flipped or they won't make it to shore. We can also understand how they might wonder how in the world Jesus can be asleep in the stern. They wake him up and ask, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And the awakened Jesus rebukes the wind as if it were badly misbehaving and commands the sea to be still. And he then rebukes the disciples for not having faith. And then the disciples ask a perfectly valid question. 
Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey? Standing on its own, the story leads one to draw two conclusions. One, Jesus is a wonder worker. Two, to have faith is to believe that Jesus can work wonders. And so if you find yourself in a storm, if you find yourself in a crisis or in the midst of troubles, do not be afraid. Have faith. Trust in Jesus, and he will bring you through the storm, safe to the other side. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I would not dare suggest that the passage is not calling us to trust in Jesus or that God will not see us through storms. However, In looking at this passage as part of the longer story that Mark tells, I wonder what this passage means when we realize that Jesus can not only lead us out of storms, Jesus also can lead us into them. I mean, consider what happens before. Just before they climb into this boat, Jesus had had worked healing wonders. And some were amazed by what he did, but some powerful Jewish leaders were upset that Jesus was healing non-life-threatening illnesses on the Sabbath. And also Jesus had been teaching, telling parables, and explaining them. Now maybe the disciples were a bit upset about that. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that when the disciples wake Jesus up, they do not call him Lord, who needs to command the waves and the winds to be still. They call him teacher. Maybe when they wake him up, they are more than afraid. Maybe they are mad at him for his teachings. Maybe they, like that wife on the Degornier, are mad. Maybe they are mad that Jesus got them into this fix. You see, what he had been teaching, whether by words or by example, had already stirred up a storm. Jesus had talked about God's grace as if it were seed to be broadcast everywhere on all kinds of soil. Those religious leaders could have assumed that the good soil that Jesus talked about, that soil that received the seed and produced a yield, would be Jewish soil. And the bad, hard-packed soil that could not receive the seed would be non-believing Gentiles and terrible sinners. Except that Jesus was having dinner with those kinds of people. And this infuriated them, and now they are conspiring to have him arrested. Oh, and that's not all. Jesus' own family, his brothers, think that he has lost his mind, and they have tried to get him to stop talking and get him away from those people and come home. And then, and then, Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat so that they can go to the other side. The other side. That's Gentile territory. And they know at least that, but maybe they also know that they are going straight to a place where a man who is unclean, possessed by an evil spirit, lives in a place that is unclean, a cemetery, and is surrounded by the most unclean of all animals, swine. So maybe they did not want to get in this blankety-blank boat in the first place and take this blankety-blank trip in the first place. 
already by association, they have been accused of violating Jewish law and being out of their minds. And they were told to get into this boat and to get possibly into even more trouble by going deeper into the very things that have created the storm. And then, (laughs) to put the cherry on top of this whole miserable experience, an actual storm hits. And the one who has led them into it is asleep on a cushion in the stern. Now again, maybe I shouldn't jump to conclusions. But is it too much of a stretch to think that this storm becomes a portal through which something darker and larger pours through? Wake up, Jesus. Wake up to what you have gotten us into. Teacher, the one who is supposed to know what you're talking about, the explainer of parables, please explain this. Why do you seem not to care that our lives are in danger? In this storm, in that storm, in the storm that might be waiting for us on the other side. And when Jesus rubs the sleep out of his eyes and responds to the disciples who are yelling at him, he asks, have you no faith? That question sounds a bit different now. Maybe Jesus isn't asking them why they don't have faith in his ability to calm the wind and the waves. Maybe Jesus is asking them why they do not have faith in the midst of storms in which they are supposed to be. Maybe the disciples are supposed to have faith in the middle of the storm because maybe they are supposed to be in this storm because maybe they are supposed to go to the other side because maybe on the other side are people who need to hear and are willing to receive the good news of the gospel. Hey, maybe the disciples are supposed to bear witness to God even in hard times and difficult places. Hmm. Maybe the disciples were supposed to be in that other storm too. When religious people became upset because they were interested only in Jews and Jewish law and not in showing compassion to those they think don't deserve it. And when loved ones wanted them to back down because they were concerned for their safety. And maybe in asking, have you no faith? Jesus is asking or saying, I'm sorry we're in this storm and the way is rough. But don't you understand that this is where God needs us to be? Every time I preach on this passage, I can't help but point to the ceiling of our sanctuary nave. Above us, for those of you who have been here, above us are rafters that are meant to evoke the ribbing of a ship's hull. Just ignore the fact that the ribbing of the keel of the boat is above us and making it seem that our boat has flipped. This design is really to comfort us. And you'll find this architectural design in many thousands of churches around the world It draws its inspiration from this passage and others in the Gospels where Jesus calms the seas. And the church is to be the boat with Christ at the helm. That's what it reminds us. Jesus is to be God among us, the one who brings order to chaos. He will calm the troubles of our lives and see us to the other side. 
And so we come to church seeking peace, seeking calm in our lives, seeking sanctuary. We come to the church and we offer prayers to God, asking for God to be with us and to guide us, to heal diseases, to bring peace to a warring world, to bring reconciliation to troubled relationships, to calm fears, to lift our hearts, to see us through the troubles of our lives. And we also remember that to be God's children is not to escape the harder aspects of being human, being sick, or at odds with others, or in times of community crisis, or even having one day to die. We come here to remind ourselves that God keeps the kind of promises many make in marriage, being with us in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, in life and in death. Jesus is in the boat with us, whether or not the skies are clear or dark with storms. And I say amen to all of that. Today, though, let's remember that to be in the boat, in the church with Jesus, is to be led into some storms. If we are courageous enough to take in the whole witness of this passage and the whole story in which it sits, we would see that it's not enough to have faith that God will deliver us through storms. We also have to have faith that when we're in them, that he's with us. And that sometimes the storms may come on us, but sometimes they are storms that we are led into by being faithful. I'll close with a side reflection on being the church in the storm of the pandemic. I hold to what I said at the very beginning of this when we did not know how long the pandemic would last or how hard it would be. Elizabeth said it too, but I'm the one preaching, so I'll just go back to when I said it. I said then that we were not simply to hide and ride it out. We were to bear a witness in the midst of it all. And I give thanks for the ways that we went beyond simply trying to ride this pandemic out, the way that we have given generously to help those most hurt, the ways that we found to worship together even while apart, how we looked at justice issues like racial reconciliation, how we stayed together as a congregation, even as leaders in our country, some of them anyway, tried to pull us apart. Now, we'll let God be the judge of how faithful we were. I'm not trying to brag or to say more than we have done, but I celebrate any way that we chose as a church to sail straight into the pandemic, bearing witness because God would not have had this church be any other place. And as we begin to gather back together on the other side of the pandemic, we pray it is so. But as we gather back together on the other side, let's not forget that not all storms are left behind. There are uncomfortable places and challenging circumstances ahead. That's life. And that's life with Jesus. And when we find ourselves in storms, those that come on us and those where Jesus leads us, let's remember that we are not alone because Jesus is with us. And sometimes we are there because that is where Jesus has led us so that we can bear witness. A passage read in two different ways. 
both right. Isn't it amazing that a passage can be pastoral and prophetic at the same time? And so too can the church. Let's get on board. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.